0: creative expertise technology patents and people intellectual property is the core of business today protecting it is a priority from a single innovation to large corporate ip issues we're talking about it here on ip council join ip council host and attorney peter lando partner of lando and anastasi right here on the legal talk network
1: Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss extraterritoriality and the development of space law, particularly in relation to intellectual property and patent law enforcement in space. Now, right from today's headlines, in fact, this very day, uh, Richard Branson was in the news and uh, opening the first commercial spaceport in New Mexico, uh, home for his company Virgin Galactic. And he predicts space travel within 12 months, now commercial space travel within 12 months. And of course, it's, it's not too difficult to see how in today's uh, more commonplace technologies, uh, cell phones, for instance, uh, rely on space, uh, given the impact of satellites on telecommunications. And as of 2009, it is estimated that the commercial impact of space transportation on the U.S. economy is over $200 billion, employing over a million people. Now, surely, an economy of this size and growth potential has had and will continue to attract huge investments in technology. And of course, investors will protect those assets with patents and other forms of intellectual property rights. But how will those patent rights be enforced? What issues arise in protecting patent rights when infringement occurs in space? Now joining me today uh, to discuss these issues is space law expert Matt Kleiman. Corporate Counsel at the Charles Stark Draper Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Draper Laboratory, as you may know, is a not-for-profit research and development organization that works with NASA, the Department of Defense, other government agencies, and commercial businesses. At Draper, Matt primarily supports Draper's space systems, special operations, biomedical and energy program offices on a wide variety of legal matters. He is a lecturer of law at Boston University Law School and serves on several national space law committees, including as chair of the Space Law Committee of the ABA Section on Science and Technology Law. Welcome to IP Council, Matt.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Happy to be here.
1: Glad to have you. Now, at first, when when we were uh, discussing the uh, the topic, uh, space law seemed, well, no pun intended, but kind of out there. But as the statistics that you shared with me and I, I mentioned a couple uh, indicate, this is quite a large economy and, um, and promises to be even larger as we go forward, given the, even the recent news of uh, Virgin, Virgin Galactic. Um, I, I'd like to get into how, how law, uh, particularly focusing on intellectual property, has developed, um, that is, in, in space and... Um, a lot of those cases, as uh, you've, you've taught me, uh, come from extraterritoriality, and, and whether it's here uh, between countries or situations involving satellites. Maybe, maybe we could start there, and, and then we'll go into uh, more specific detail.
2: Sure. And as you said, this is a really exciting time for the space industry. It's a time of significant change. Uh, your audience may know NASA has retired the space shuttle uh, this past summer, and there's really a new a new era of of what many predicting a new era of commercial spaceflight. Commercial space is already a huge industry, and it's only poised to grow more. So one of the there there are really two two general sources of of space law, and it, there's the international component, all the international treaties. Then there's a the domestic component, and how the domestic law interacts with the with space law is really where where patents and many other issues come in. From the very beginning of space law back in 1957 with, with Sputnik, one of the principles that was established was the fact that there is no sovereignty in outer space. So unlike airspace where uh, the airspace over a nation is owned by that nation and under the jurisdiction of that nation as part of their territory, space has no uh, no natural territorial jurisdiction. So all the application of laws to outer space is on an extraterritorial basis. And the Outer Space Treaty says that spacecraft are under the jurisdiction and control of their launching states, of their home countries. So, for example, U.S. spacecraft are under the jurisdiction and control of the United States. But that's not always clear in, in how laws that were written for uh, terrestrial applications, such as patent laws, and which are territorial in nature. So a, a U.S. patent, as everybody knows, applies only for the most part in the United States. Um, how that applies to spacecraft. And really, one of the, in, in the the line of cases that deal with extraterritoriality, uh, one of the first cases in, in that line is right from the dawn of the space age in 1966, uh, a case called Rosen versus NASA. And the issue was... Whether a patent that covered the operation of a communication satellite that was owned by Hughes Aircraft was reduced to practice in the United States when it was actually when it was reduced to practice up in outer space, it wasn't reduced to practice until outer space. And there, the court said, um, this is back in 1966, that that we are inclined to view the operation of the satellite um, as not removed from the United States just because it's necessarily distanced from the United States because it was controlled in the U.S. It was, uh, because it was controlled in the U.S., it was still under U.S. patent jurisdiction.
1: I understand. And this was a Supreme Court decision?
2: No, this was uh, the Board of of Patent Appeals.
1: I apologize. Okay.
2: Yep. Uh, Back then. Then then the the, the sort of line of cases moved forward in 1976. uh, A Supreme Court case, Deca versus United States, uh, dealt with a radio navigation system. And this was a, a, a predecessor to what some people might remember as the Loran system, which triangulated radio signals. And there were, there were uh, stations, eight stations worldwide, and company, uh, a company called DECA had a patent on this radio system. And this system was used by the U.S. Navy back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And the, the issue there was whether the U.S. patents applied to this whole system. And there the court said... That uh, as long as the system was controlled uh, from U.S. territory, if it was owned by a U.S. entity, in this case the Navy, and the beneficial use was in the United States, uh, in this case the beneficial use was for the U.S. Navy, then it did fall within U.S. jurisdiction, even though most of the system was outside the territory of the United States. Uh, the next case that sort of kept going on Uh, And uh, and then there was a huge litigation between Hughes Aircraft Company and the United States. And what this dealt with was something called a spin-stabilized satellite. When a satellite is is in orbit, a communication satellite or other satellite, one way to control it is to have it spinning, sort of like a gyroscope. Mm -hmm. And Hughes got a patent on it and then sued the, right after it issued, it sued the United States for infringement, basically for all of the spacecraft that used their spin stabilization system. Uh, originally, it was 14 spacecraft in the lawsuit, uh, eventually went up to over 100 spacecraft were covered by this. And, and Hughes won. Generally, the courts agreed that the, the, the patent, one, was valid and two, covered the United States' satellites. But then the question was that the court had to go through all of these more than 100 satellites, whether each one was under the jurisdiction of the United States. And it looked into different factors um, of, of whether it was whether it applied, and basically, what it was looking for was using the DECA analysis and the Rosen analysis where control and beneficial use was. And so, for example, there was one satellite that uh, called Helios. It was a U.S.-German satellite, and it, it it was built in Germany. It was controlled from Germany but it was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. And in that case, the court said, well, even though the patent covered the operations in space, because it was launched from the United States, it came under U.S. patent jurisdiction and and was subject to the infringement damages in the lawsuit. But on the other hand, there was a a satellite called Ariel 5 that was a U.S.-U.K. mission. Uh, This was built in the U.K., controlled from the U.K., uh, it was launched from a launch platform in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Kenya. So it never entered the United States, and it wasn't really controlled from the United States. And for that satellite, the U.S. said even though it may have infringed on this patent, it, the U.S. had no patent jurisdiction over the satellite.
1: Now that was because of the uh, the, the DECA factors, the uh, control, beneficial use, and ownership?
2: Exactly. The court there, and that was a court of appeals case, the court there relied uh, explicitly on DECA and the Rosen case that I mentioned earlier to look at the control, the beneficial use, uh, and, and how those factors apply to those satellites.
1: I see. Okay. Now, th- there was a more, uh, I understand there was a more modern and, um, and potentially uh, more um, impactful, at least as to everyday life, uh, case uh, not too long ago uh, in this same line.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that I think what you're referring to is, uh, the case NTP versus Research in Motion from 2005. Uh, a lot of your audience may be familiar with that. That dealt with the BlackBerry system, right? And and the company NTP suing Research in Motion for uh, infringement of a, a series of patents it had on communica- uh, communication uh, wireless communication patents. And one of the issues in that case was whether the, the system and method claims were under U.S. patent jurisdiction because when you send a BlackBerry, a message on your BlackBerry, the message is routed through a relay station in Canada. So the, the whole system isn't located in the United States. And there, again, the court said that for at least system claims, that the U.S. would have jurisdiction over those claims if the control and beneficial use, uh, they didn't really care too much about ownership, but, but control and beneficial use of, of the system was in the United States. And with the BlackBerry system, it was
1: okay. And so that control and beneficial use is is going to instruct us going forward.
2: That's right. That that's the current uh, the current state of the common law uh, extraterritoriality analysis.
1: Okay. So then, what as, as um, at the same time in parallel tracks? What's going on in in um, uh, at that time anyway? Um, in treaties and statutes.
2: Sure. So, as I alluded to in the beginning, uh, the, the, the foundational instrument of outer space law is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And this is sometimes referred to uh, as the Magna Carta of, of outer space. It was, if you think about it, 1967, it was a pretty unique time in the space race. It was the height of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union at the time. We, had, we, the United States, had not yet landed a person on the moon. We did not yet know whether we were going to be able to make it within President Kennedy's decade deadline by the end of the 1960s. Uh, so there was a real incentive for, for a different country, for the, the, the two sides of the Cold War to come together and agree on general principles of operating in space. And one of the things that they agreed to was that the uh, space objects, they called it the State of Registration. So just like a ship is registered to a particular country, um, a, a spacecraft is also registered under this U- United Nations system to a specific country, and that the state of registration shall have jurisdiction and control over that spacecraft while it's in outer space. And to, to figure out who the state of registration is, a few years later in 1975, the UN, there was another UN treaty called the Registration Convention. And this defined the concept of the launching state is the term that's used in that the launching state is the state of registration. Now, the thing is, they, the, the framers of that treaty, uh, put, uh, basically established four different factors that could be used to evaluate whether which country is a launching state. And any of these factors could be used. It could be one, the country that launches the spacecraft. Two, the country that procures the launching of the spacecraft. Three, the country from whose territory the spacecraft is launched or from whose facility the spacecraft is launched. And, and the country that fits into any of those might apply. And for most spacecraft, it's it's pretty clear which spacecraft is a launching state. Obviously, a, a U.S. government-owned spacecraft, the U.S. is a launching state. Uh, a U.S. company, if it's owned by a U.S. company and launched from the United States, the U.S. would be a launching state. But many spacecraft and space missions are, are international missions. And, you know, for example, in international companies, there's, just as an example of how complicated this could be, there was a company called Sea Launch um, that was that was formed in the 1990s. It's still around, but in, in a different form. But back in the 1990s, the it was owned uh 40% by Boeing which is a US company, 25% mm-hmm. by a Russian company, 20% by a Norwegian company and 15% by a Ukrainian company. <laughs> it was it, it operated as an LLC that was registered in the British Cayman Islands <laughs> and, and the launch it was launched from a a, a platform that looked almost like an oil, an offshore oil rig and the platform was in international waters and the platform itself was registered to Liberia. So under those four factors, the, the crazy thing is, is that oh, any of those countries that I just mentioned, the U.S., Russia, Norway, Ukraine, uh, Cayman is- British for the Cayman Islands, Liberia, could conceivably be the launching state. And under the U.N. system, nobody, they, they, there isn't anybody who vets this. So it's a, it's a very passive system that the, the, the launch operator chooses which launching state to use which state to designate as a launching state. And there's nobody really who vets that and decides whether that's valid or not.
1: And, and that'll, be, that'll be important to decide uh, uh, the launching state because that's the state of registration and that'll be the uh, state that retains jurisdiction and control over the object.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, and as far as patent, just to bring this back to, to the patent question, if you have a, technolo- a space technology and by space technology, I mean a technology where the the patent uh, would only cover uh, the claims would only cover activities in space. So there's no connection to a, terrestri- a space terrestrial, a space-terrestrial system, because uh, in the latter case, uh, where the terrestrial component would control jurisdiction. But if you have a you know a satellite, a, a patent on a, a component of a satellite, the the patent jurisdiction you're under depends on what state it's registered in. So, if you have a, a U.S. patent, but it's not, but your spacecraft is not registered in the United States, then it's not under U.S. patent jurisdiction.
1: So, uh, just to make this um, so it, it, kind of a day-to-day thing, if 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 Draper, let's use a different company. If if uh, Company X has a patent in the U.S. Yep. and and uh, the the sea launch type of project is. Uh, um, underway and launches and forget the boeing experience they're not in that let's say it's just all it's a russia norway ukraine uh, uh, cayman islands and liberia are involved yep. in in some aspects here and and there's infringement on the on the uh satellite that's launched um some aspect of the satellite infringes that u.s patent that company x owns uh there's no jurisdiction to sue in the u.s is that correct Correct. So you would have to have a patent then in one of those one of those countries.
2: Correct. You would have to um, basically figure out where the launching states might be of, of potential infringers and make sure you have patents in those countries.
1: Okay. Now, just just one quick thing before we go to break. Um, the U.S. Um, amended their patent statute trying to address some of the inventions in outer space.
2: Yes. So there was a, a, in a. a statute that was enacted in 1990. It enacted what became uh, 35 U.S.C. Section 105 of the Patent Act called the Inventions in Outer Space. And what this did is it clarified that the purpose was to just clarify that U.S. patent jurisdiction extended to U.S. spacecraft. And that was passed in the background of the beginnings of the space station so that people thought they're beginning to think there'd be a lot of commercial activity in outer space. There were also a number of Supreme Court cases around that time, and Court of Appeals cases about extraterritoriality generally that that held pretty strongly that unless Congress affirmatively states that a law applies outside the territory of the United States, laws won't be implied to apply there. So Congress, as a belt and suspenders move, uh, passed this act to extend patent laws into U.S. registered spacecraft. But what they did is they they they, they said, but there will be no U.S. jurisdiction if the spacecraft is registered to a different country under the Registration Convention. And there's no real legislative history on that, but I think it's safe to presume that that was that somebody's, the drafter's efforts to just say, well, we're, we recognize that there is this international registration regime, and we're going to, going to respect that.
1: Okay. All right, let me hold you there, Matt, because you can see you've set up what the what the problem might be and how people might might kind of attempt to game this system by registering in uh, smaller countries or countries that not typically um, folks do not typically file patents in and maybe don't have much of a jurisprudence around patent uh, enforcement. So you, you've set up the problem, and I want to come back to that when we come back from a break. Great. When we come back, more with Matt Kleiman.
0: Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says our podcast feeds. Now you'll be all set. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781 551 9960, or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
1: Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we are joined by Matt Kleiman, Corporate Counsel at the Charles Stark Draper Laboratory. And we've been discussing... Space Law and the development of space law uh, in relation to uh, patent law and enforcement of patents in particular in space, when we left off, we were talking about the u uh, s uh, the statute inventions in outer space and and how they would be how they would be uh, uh, governed and um, and the exceptions to that and um, i'd like to go back just even a little further and talk about the what does it take to to to, um, to register? So,
2: so, registration is a very passive system. There's You, you have to register in, in two places. And one is, is with the United Nations uh, the Office of Outer Space Affairs, and they maintain a registry. And that is simply a, a filing uh, that is made to register your spacecraft. And actually, the, the, your launching state, uh, whichever state you designate as your launching state, would make that filing. There's no real review process or anything, but it goes on file and and you can go on the United Nations website and find uh, all the registrations for what the the technical term is a space object. Um, I've been saying spacecraft, but space objects. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you also have to register with your national registry. So if you're a U.S. spacecraft, you have to actually get it. If you're a commercial spacecraft, you get a license from the FAA. Uh, a lot of people think it would be NASA, but NASA is not a regulatory agency. It's the FAA that regulates the launch of private spacecraft, or and, and other countries that launch spacecraft have similar similar agencies.
1: Now, now is that a difficult thing? Uh, registration is that an expensive thing? I mean,
2: uh, at the UN level, it is not difficult, but at the U.S. level, the FAA is, actually has a, has a very robust process for for licensing the launch of private spacecraft uh it's actually been doing it since the 1980s and i think there's something like over 200 private launches have been licensed by the FAA um, and these are you know so not not government launches but private launches
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh it it is it, you know it is it's it's like getting any other type of government license i wouldn't say it's overly difficult the FAA is generally seen as, as very knowledgeable and and their space office is, is knowing what they're doing and being willing to work with companies um uh, on the registration and licensing process, they're obviously most concerned with safety, um, but 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 it's not for uh, more difficult than any other type of licensing process, really.
1: But okay, um, w- with regard to registration in other countries, um, is that more or less difficult? I I could imagine it being a uh, an opportunity for smaller nations in lesser developed nations even to attract um, um, investment.
2: Uh, absolutely. So each country has their own system, and the FAA is probably the most most robust for for good reasons. Um, and and you, as an FAA licensed launch, when they eventually license human spacecraft, you could probably be pretty confident has been has been vetted under the U.S. regulations. But absolutely, each country can do their own thing, and it's very possible that that smaller countries will enact less stringent processes okay. and make it very easy almost like uh, what I equate, have equated to in the past is the flag of convenience system for ships, that more than half of the world's merchant ships are registered in a few countries that are known as flags of convenience states. And these states uh, enact weaker, whether it's lower taxes, weaker labor or environmental standards that make it attractive for shipping companies to register their ship there, ships there. So you might notice that if you've seen a, a merchant ship, it might be registered in Panama or Liberia or two of the most popular flag of convenience states, even though the company that owns the ships has no relation real relation to Panama or Liberia or one of the other flag of convenience states
1: okay okay so you you can see how Congress and um, uh, inter intergovernment agencies uh, were were um, predicting commercial space travel and and implementing some of these laws and treaties. Uh, there was one other I'm, I'm uh, neglecting to discuss, to have you discuss, is the uh, 1998 ISS agreement?
2: Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the ISS is the International Space Station that was just completed uh, this past year. From, uh, but the before construction began in the late 90s, all of the partners to the International Space Station, the U.S., Russia... Uh, Europe, Japan, um, uh, Canada—they they entered into what's called as the international uh, intergovernmental agreement governing the International Space Station. And one of the things that they addressed is intellectual property and how inventions uh, would be handled in any disputes. And they said in Article Twenty-One of this agreement, they they said that each flight element, so each module of the space station. Would be under the jurisdiction for patent purposes, and this applies to other uh, types of laws too. But under the jurisdiction of the owner of that of, of that module, so the register of that module. So you have the, the the space station is made up of modules and other components that are each registered to different countries. So the the components that were built uh, by the U.S. are under are registered to the U.S. and under U.S. US jurisdiction. The components that were built and launched by Russia on the other hand, are under Russian jurisdiction and European jurisdiction and so on. so when you 're on the international Space Station for jurisdictional purposes, there is no one jurisdiction, depending on what module you 're in you 're under the laws, including the patent laws of whatever country is the country registration for that particular module very
1: interesting, very interesting i uh, okay i I mentioned um before we went to break um, the the issues uh, as it was being teed up by your explanation, what what the uh, statute had covered, and uh, the development of of uh, intellectual property law in space, um, the the space patent uh, kind of loophole. Can you explain what? Uh...
2: Sure. So what the space patent loophole is, and that's our term. And I'll just give a, a plug to my co-authors uh, Kurt Hammerley and Ted Rowe. They're actually two uh, patent attorneys down in NASA, who we recently wrote an article about this, um, is, is the exception I mentioned to the Inventions in Outer Space statute, where it says U.S. spacecraft are under U.S. jurisdiction, but it doesn't apply if, but there's no U.S. jurisdiction if there's a different registration, if it's registered under the registration convention under a different country. Uh, so, for example, in the uh, in the examples I gave earlier about that that case with Hughes Aircraft, um, one of the satellites that the u s that the court found that the u s had jurisdiction over was registered in Germany because it was, even it was built and, and controlled from Germany but launched from Florida. so the court said there was enough of a tie there to give u s jurisdiction over it, but that was before the statute was passed, so right now so now the case wouldn't come out the same way. The case would come out that the U.S. does not have jurisdiction over that satellite because the satellite was registered to Germany, not the United States. So what the, the, the mm-hmm. loophole is, is that, um, the, the statute, and we think it's inadvertent. As I said, there was, there's not really legislative history on it, but it inadvertently overrode the common law, uh, extraterritoriality argument, uh, 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 jurisprudence from DECA, Rosen, um that, that, that that looked at it on a case by case and looked at whether there was control and beneficial use. Now, the control and beneficial use doesn't matter. Uh, if it's registered to another country, then it goes it's under the jurisdiction of that country, even if there's control and beneficial use. So you could see how this tees up potential abuse of the system using these flag of convenience states, where if a country if a space company wanted to avoid infringing a patent that would otherwise prevent it from doing whatever it is it wanted to do, or having to pay a, a a royalty, the the company could register its spacecraft, figure out a way to have a launching state be one of the states where the patent is not on file. So maybe some country in, in, in the developing world where the the original patent owners didn't think or didn't want to go through the expense of filing a patent. They would register their spacecraft there, operate the spacecraft, and the patent holder would have no recourse under US patent law to enforce his patent rights.
1: Mm-hmm. So so what we need then, it sounds, is some congressional action, at least um, to remove the exception, the registration uh, convention exception. Right.
2: And that's what my co-authors and I argued, is that there, there really is no reason for the registration exception. There are other laws that the U.S. has passed that, that give the U.S. jurisdiction in other areas over spacecraft that are registered to other countries. Uh, for example, the most uh the most important being that US the law called the Commercial Space Launch Act requires that a US company that launches a spacecraft from anywhere in the world has to get an FAA license, uh even, and, and there's no nothing in there about an exception for it being registered to another country. There is an exception if the US has an agreement with that country, um but but generally uh, no matter where the, what the launching state is, if it's a U.S. company or a U.S. citizen that is launching the spacecraft, they have to get an FAA license. And as far as I know, there has been no argument made by anybody that that's inconsistent with the Registration Convention or any of the other space treaties. Um, so so there really, uh, my co-authors and I felt that there was really no reason to have this ex- exception, and that this exception just sets up this flag of convenience problem yeah. uh, that will make it, Relatively easy for for space companies to avoid patents if they really want to.
1: Matt, Matt, to your knowledge, do other countries that have um, vigorous space programs or viable space programs—Russia, China, Europe, um, 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 Japan—even uh, do do they have a similar um, exception?
2: No, uh not not familiar with any other countries having a similar exception. Okay. because um, it was seeming to
1: me that I mean we were looking at it from a primarily a US perspective and yep. and how we might enforce US patents in these situations but mm-hmm. um certainly other other uh, of these countries or companies in other of these countries uh could face a similar situation um where registration could be in in uh some some other country and and they wouldn't have jurisdiction. I'm, I'm guessing.
2: Sure, absolutely, especially because the Outer Space Treaty says that the, the the launching state, the the country of registration, has jurisdiction over spacecraft. So if you if you as a space company are able to play around with to, to use a word that might be a little pejorative, but to play around with registration to find an advantageous launching state. Uh, You could avoid whether it's patent laws or or other liability laws, safety laws, by having a launching state that has laws that are favorable to that company.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, Let's wrap up. I'd I'd like to know if you're aware of any um, efforts – or are you out front, you and your co-authors are out front, uh, are there any efforts underway uh, either in international agencies or in Congress, our own Congress, um, to close some of these loopholes or to harmonize uh, some of these uh, enforcement mechanisms? I know there's been activity and I'm sure you're aware with uh, uh, efforts to harmonize our patent law um, um on, on very broad topics, first to file and so on, but uh, but I'm, I'm I'm wondering if you're aware of any efforts in specific regard to what we're talking about today.
2: So, not with respect to the specific loophole in the Inventions in Outer Space Act. Uh, my co-authors and I, we didn't find any other articles or, or memos or, or policy papers uh, discussing this specific issue. But there there have been discussions for for many years now about harmonizing. Space law, national space laws generally, recognizing that as commercial space becomes more important, uh, companies will one want a, a regime that, that's consistent and that's predictable, and and that benefits public safety when you have humans uh, going into outer space also, and protects companies' investments. But there there was a wipeout of the World Inter- International Property Organization did publish a policy paper, I think in 2004, maybe a couple years off on that, but but, but within the last uh, few years that talked about the need to harmonize international patent law generally and that an international uh, framework for patents would benefit commercial space and benefit IP protection generally.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I, I uh it's it's very exciting uh topic. It's it's really out at the at the forefront here. I don't hear too many uh discussing it, but uh, given the size and growth of the economy uh involving it um and in the next five or ten years, it will become uh, much more commonplace, I'm sure. If you, if you think back just uh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, we, weren't, we weren't working on an internet and sending each other emails, let alone wirelessly. So uh, I think uh, it's a very exciting future, and I think the, uh, some of the issues you've you've laid out will need to be addressed, no doubt.
2: Great. Well, thank you for having me, Peter. This was a lot of fun.
1: Okay. Well, that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And a very special thanks to my guest, Matt Kleiman, for joining me today. Matt, if uh, someone wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you?
2: Sure. The best way is by email. Uh, probably the easiest email address is mkleiman, K-L-E-I-M-A-N, at B-U
1: Very good. And of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at PLando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council and have a great day, everyone.
0: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.